Well, good morning, everyone. I actually was wondering why I was wearing this jacket a few seconds ago. And it has everything to do with uh, getting lost in the worship. I was kind of lost in the worship. And then all of a sudden I realized, I, oh, I'm preaching this morning too. So I remember when I was pastoring, every once in a while I would lose myself in the worship. And I go, oh, yeah, I still got some responsibilities this morning. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about myself, a little bit more than what Icky said. So I am Stan Newton, and I'm going to kind of do this Benjamin Buttons backwards style. And currently, I'm the interim director of Dallas Theological Seminary because my boss has ALS. And so I stepped into his position. And some of you might have remembered Willie Bolden, who used to attend this church. And I'm actually now in Willie Bolden's position, too. So pastored in Houston here for eight years prior to uh, coming on to Dallas Seminary and ran their internship program. For them, and prior to that was in North Carolina and in um, Washington State. Uh, before that, I was a math and science school teacher while I was at seminary, and then, like Icky said, I'm a Naval Academy graduate, so I was a submarine officer, drove submarines around the ocean when the Russians were the bad guys for the second time. I think they're the bad guys now for the third time. If you're Russian here, sorry. Um, <laughs> Just, just the way I was trained. Uh, but um, uh, honestly, I came to faith at the United States Naval Academy. So I am a first-gen Christian. Uh, both sides of my family going way back, pretty antagonistic toward Christianity. Although they would probably say they're Christians because I was born in the Midwest. And everybody who's born in the Midwest who's a good person, I'm a good person, was a Christian, right? So I get to the Naval Academy and um, my roommate, who is actually a real Christian, brings me to an evangelism dinner. And there's a guy that says that Jesus died in my place. And I was like, what? Because I grew up in Europe. My dad was a military officer. I was son of an Air Force officer. So I've been in cathedrals, seen Jesus hanging on a cross, and just always thought church was something like a club. And I was a Boy Scout and did things like that, but church was like a little bit closer to God club, um, but had no idea that God wanted a personal relationship with me. And so when I heard that Jesus died in my place on the cross, I was like, I'm in. And knew instantaneously in that moment that I'd eventually be a pastor, which was really shocking because like I told you, I never grew up in church and I had never been in church and I didn't know what pastors did. I just knew that I was going to be one. And here's the really interesting thing. Then I realized they spoke on stage and all of my childhood teenage insecurities came rushing back on me because I had developed sort of a persona on the outside to not let people in, but I was really insecure as a person. Just growing up, I was insecure as a person. My older brother, two years older than me, he, he was always bigger, stronger, faster, smarter than me. He still is bigger, stronger, smarter, and faster than me. And after all these years, richer. He's also richer than I am. So um, just always was kind of in that space of not feeling that I was enough. And so I'd kind of developed this persona on the inside full of insecurities. And I realized that I could keep that going in small settings with just a few people, but standing on stage with the lights, uh, all that was going to get exposed. People were going to judge me. Uh, I used to hate walking into the cafeteria at school because it just felt like everybody's eyes were on me. I remember one day early in my Christian life, this young lady said to me, you, you're really prideful. And I was like, what, what, what? no, 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 I'm insecure. And she goes, no, 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 you're prideful because you think everybody's looking at you. And I was like, oh, yeah. 
kind of do think everybody's looking at me. But anyway, the whole point was, is I was just terrified. And that's what I want to talk about today is God dealing with those insecurities that we have and the insecurities that we have really because of our sin, we're guilty and our shame. We know there's something broken about us. And ironically, the solution to our problem is the very thing that we're going to run away from. And that is God himself. Because it's God's holiness, it's God's justice, it's God's, it's God's perfect character that terrifies us. All you have to do is remember after Jesus gave the big catch of fish to Peter, when he looked at Jesus and he said, Lord, leave me, I am full of sin. He got a little taste of Jesus' holiness in that moment and all of a sudden was terrified. We are afraid of holiness. We are afraid, not the lights of the stage. But beloved, you will one day stand before the Most High at a judgment seat and everything that you have ever done will be exposed. That is the light of his glory showing on you. And what I'm going to tell you this morning is that very same light is the solution to our problem. But that's not intuitive. It's very counterintuitive. In fact, we think we should run away. So I'd like to talk about how God does this from Leviticus chapter 2. So I'm actually an Old Testament PhD student also. And so when Icky asked me to preach, this is the second time he asked me to preach. You weren't here the first time because he actually preached for me the first time. Um, The first time, he thought he got exposed to COVID. So he called me on Thursday and said, hey, do you got something from Nehemiah that you could preach? Because we're going through Nehemiah right now. And I had nothing. But I said, yes, I do, Nikki, because I actually enjoy preaching and teaching God's word. So I said, Icky, I got it. I got you. He called me Saturday morning. I had the whole sermon ready to go, but he actually preached it better than I thought I was going to that morning anyway. So anyway, um, we're in Leviticus chapter one. Uh, we're going to look in Leviticus chapter two. And the whole book of Leviticus really is about approaching the Lord. If I had known that when I was a younger Christian, I would have read it a little bit more carefully. So the first time I read through Leviticus, I didn't grow up in a Christian home. My church was going through an annual Bible reading program, and my wife and I were very young. I was actually working over 100 hours a week in the shipyard, and I was exhausted all the time. And really, basically what I did was I came home, and I just hoped that I was going to get enough sleep to make it to the next day to go back to work in the shipyard. And we had a little girl, Victoria, as our firstborn. And Carla was exhausted from taking uh, care of Victoria. So we thought, what we'll do is we'll read through uh, the Bible program. And that's what we'll do in the evenings. And then we'll go back to work. And we got to Leviticus. And no lie, both of us fell asleep while we were reading the text. (laughs) Leviticus has killed more annual Bible reading programs than any book in the Bible. You know that. And so my goal, partly as an Old Testament PhD student, is to introduce Leviticus to you in a morning that you'll go, man, I'm going to go read through Leviticus because it's really, really a rich text. So let me start with this idea in Leviticus that it begins with a Hebrew letter, Vav, and that Vav is a super versatile little letter. It's the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet, so it could be a consonant. It could be a vowel, it could be the conjunction and, and it also could be a vowel conjunction, which being translated means it's continuing action from before. So how many books do you know start with the first line starting with it's continuing the action before? In other words, there's some story going on that we have to know 
to listen to the first two verses of Leviticus, which I will now read. This is a continuation of action. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When an Adam of you brings... You heard me say that when an Adam of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the livestock from the herd or from the flock. So let's uh, step back. Can't tell the whole story of Exodus, but we're just going to zoom in like a movie into the last chapter of Exodus chapter, which is chapter 40. And if you saw kind of from a, a high view coming in, what you would see is all the people of Israel are standing around the tent of meeting. And there's just a little bit of action going on. And that action is Moses and Aaron and a couple of the other priests who are helping him. And the text actually says Moses is setting up the last of the tent. And I'm going to pick it up in verse 31. And it says, So Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet, and they went into the tent of meeting. And when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord commanded Moses, and he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, and he set up the screen of the gate of the court. And so Moses finished the work. So what we just saw as we zoomed in is Moses sort of as the building inspector, as a contractor, has finished building the tent of meeting. And then verse 34, the glory of the Lord descends on the tent of meeting. And it doesn't just feel the holy of holies and it doesn't feel just the holy place. It fills the whole tent of meeting. And Moses, the text says, couldn't stand there, which is another way of saying he ran out. So look at the picture. That's what Moses did. He runs out of the tent of meeting parenthetical comment uh, for the next thing about the tabernacle being in the wilderness. And then God calls to Moses and says, this is the Vav conjunctive. This is the beginning of the book of Leviticus. Speak to, he speaks to him from the tent of meeting saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when any of you brings an offering in here. So you got to kind of picture this. Wasn't Moses the guy that was up on the mountain? talking to God and his face would get all full of shiny glory. And then he would come down and he would speak to the sons of Israel and he would veil his face because his glory would go away. And then he would go back up to the Lord on the mountain and he would talk to God and then he would come back down. Now Moses can't stand in there. It's because the glory of the Lord is exposing who Moses is before him. No one, everyone is outside standing there. And then the voice of the Lord says, Come back. That's what he's saying. Come back. Only not you, Moses. Speak to everyone and come back. Now, if you're following the narrative of the Bible at this point, we've blown it in the garden. And there's a separation between us and God. And then we have these really nasty stories like the flood, where he wipes out a lot of humans. Or the Tower of Babel, where he confuses all of our language. As people are trying to, on their own efforts, build a way up to God. But then we get all these little snippets of God talking to Abraham and God talking to Isaac and Jacob and then God talking to Moses. And and we think, okay, well, God's talking to individuals. And then God was coming down from heaven and talking on a mountain. But if you see the move of God, he's now moved from heaven to a mountain into a tent. He's down at ground level with us. And he is saying... I want everyone to come back. 
Now, if that's all you get out of this sermon, I am telling you that God is saying, I don't care how distant you are from me this morning. Come back. Come home. I have made a way for everyone to come home. And not only just come home, be accepted. Not just come in and kind of skulk off into a corner somewhere and hope that whoever I am never gets exposed, but actually to come in and be front and center and to be one of his glorious children. Let me pick it up in verse three. So this is the way you got to come back. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall flay the burnt offering, cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priests, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat and on the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its leg he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, there's a couple of words in there that you need to pick up. And the number one word is acceptable. You don't catch anything else from all the details of the way to offer an offering. The whole point of it is so that you would stand in the presence of God accepted. That's what he's saying. He's saying, come back. And you don't have to pay for anything. Come back and you need to confess your guilt and your sin and your transgression. But you don't have to pay. Somebody else is paying for you. There's a substitute. But beloved, you're accepted. God is extending his grace to you to accept you. That's beautiful. No, no, what you have to do is admit your position before him. Uh, so the language that God uses to call to Moses from this tent of meeting is the same kind of language that he used to call to Adam when he was in the bush. When he says, where are you? What God is asking in the garden after Adam sins is, where are you? You need to come back. But Adam goes, I'm naked. Who told you you were naked? Well, we know it. So this isn't in my notes. I'm just going to help you all out with marriage here. Uh, nakedness is not just physical nakedness in the scriptures. It's actually exposure inside. How do we know this? Because when Noah's sons see Noah naked, we've all been in junior high gym class together and had to shower, right? Um, we all know the plumbing. So it's not that Noah's physical nakedness is the problem. It's Noah has sinned before the Lord by getting drunk. And his boys come in and they see that nakedness. And then they back in and they put a covering over him. So when it says in the garden that Adam and Eve looked at one another and they were naked and they were not ashamed, that meant total exposure and there was no shame on the inside. This is prior to the fall. This is supposed to be what's happening in your small group. That you're slowly peeling back the layers that you've covered yourself with of the things that are really inside. And people are looking at you 
and God is redeeming you and sanctifying you and making you new and you're growing and you know that you're safe because those people love you. They care for you. They forbear with you. They forgive your sins. You forgive their sins. But as you're being transformed from one degree of glory to another, that's what's happening in the marriage. And so what ended up happening in the fall was Adam looked over at Eve and where he had strengths and he had weaknesses and where she had strengths and she, he had, she had weaknesses and they were supposed to complement one another. She was built as an Ezra, a helper for him. All of a sudden he went, with my strengths I can abuse. Well then with her strengths she can abuse. So what they do is they cover themselves. And this is the way we live most of our lives. I want you to see my strengths but none of my weaknesses. And you show me your strengths, but none of your weaknesses. But the whole point of the way God made us was we are dependent on one another. And so those weaknesses aren't necessarily sin. They're just complementary. It's the reason he made her was because Adam had a lack. The reason he designed Adam the way he was was because Adam had a lack and she had a lack. And then they were supposed to come together and both demonstrate the glory of Christ together as a team. But the moment they saw that the other one had weaknesses, now it's a, it's a chance for exploitation. And we can just talk about the billions of people on earth in the millennia sense. That's what's going on with humanity. By the way, beloved, this is why Jesus dies naked on the cross. Fully exposed. We got to see everything. So that he could turn it around. To clothe us with righteousness. So accepted. That's what's happening here. To be accepted. Now the other thing is it's going to make atonement for you. So you take your hands. The man takes his hands. He lays his hands on the uh, sacrifice symbolically to say I'm transferring my guilt. So this is public. Um, by the way, this just in our individualistic culture is really difficult for us. But their worship was public. I've often watched here as the prayer team has come up at the end of the service and people are standing on the side and kind of like no one's going up because I think there's probably some people going, man, I don't want to expose that to everyone. Well, let me tell you, Stan used to have hundreds of goats and now he only has dozens of goats. You know why Stan only has dozens of goats? It's because Stan keeps sinning <laughs> and Stan keeps bringing his goats to the tabernacle and killing them. <laughs> And his goats are going away. And then maybe Stan ought to figure out he ought to stop sinning. And some of the way you take care of that is by confessing sin to one another. And having your brothers and sisters pray for you. And so today I understand there's a baptism here. This is all about public, beloved. It's about being so secure in who you are that you can go public. Because I'll tell you what it will get exposed if you haven't dealt with this, try sharing the gospel with an unbeliever. They know. And they start sometimes bringing the light of God's word onto God's people, do they not? It's not inconsistent or we're just not consistent with it. And so we're afraid to share. Wouldn't be afraid to share if your sins were confessed and you knew that Christ accepted you. But if you still think, and I have to be a good person to get this done, maybe so. But I've transferred my sin. My sin is now on that goat. And it's been killed. It's died in my place. Exactly like what God said in the garden. And then the last thing in that phrase is. 
It is a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Now, I've asked about 15 people this question, and I've gotten the same answer every time. So I'm pretty much thinking that the 16th person will say the same. Have you ever craved a smell? I can't ever once remembering in my life craving a smell. I've craved water. I've craved chocolate brownies. I've craved nacho chips, but I've never craved a smell. When my daughter comes home and she hugs me, she has this particular kind of perfume. And when I hold her, it's a pleasing aroma. But I don't crave the smell. If I was at Dillard's and I walked by the perfume counter and I smelled that, I would not be satisfied. Why am I satisfied? Because she's home. She's come to visit me. And guess what she doesn't smell like the next morning when she's there? She wakes up in the morning, comes to get her coffee, and I give her a big hug. And that's what I care about. Not the smell. The smell is just a way to say that God is really happy you're standing in front of him. Really happy that you're there. And by the way, in the ancient world, this text would have been so far different than anything that they ever read. And the reason that is, is because they gave sacrifices to the gods so the gods could eat them. The gods ate the sacrifices and they kind of viewed the altar as like a Star Trek thing. So when you burned the sacrifice on the altar, then it kind of got like beamed up in the spiritual world and the gods ate the food. It's very clear in the book of Leviticus that God is not eating anything we're given to him. In fact, the reason it says it's a pleasing aroma to him is because he's not eating it. He's just in a sense smelling it like when your prayers go up. So the book of Leviticus is all about a very, very different sacrificial system than anything that they saw in their world. Because if you read the ancient Mesopotamian flood narratives that parallel the Noahic flood narrative, the gods actually are like frustrated because they've wiped out humanity on the earth and all of a sudden one of them goes, who's going to feed us? (laughs) If you've ever read your Old Testament, doesn't Yahweh say numbers of times, I don't eat the things you bring me. I don't need to eat the things you bring me. I'm just glad you're here. And so this pleasing aroma is saying, not only are you accepted and your guilt has been transferred, but I am really happy that you're here, but I didn't do this for me. I did this for you. I didn't move in the relationship. You moved in the relationship. I'm bringing you back. This is beautiful. A lot of times... I listen to some modern worship songs and it's like, man, God, we are down here and we are righteous and we're just waiting for you to do something. And I'm like, I think you're missing the point of the book he gave us. The book was he came down and fixed everything for us and he's waiting for us to come back. He's waiting for us to come back. Now, I said earlier that Adam is the one that had to do this. I want to go deep here and I want to go grisly. Because the term Adam in the Hebrew means man. And that's exactly what it says in Leviticus 1. And only men are allowed in the tent of meeting. So we have to ask ourselves, why did he say that? Well, it's really hard to read this text as a modern American if you don't understand the world they lived in and how radical it was for them. So uh, in the ancient world, no one was allowed to see the sacrifices And no one was actually allowed to read the text. There was a thing they used to put in the uh, graves with Egyptians called the Book of the Dead. And it's the source of a lot of mummy 
movies where they find a book of the dead and they read it and then everything starts coming back to life. And that was kind of the idea of reading the spells and the, and the witchcraft stuff of the book of the dead. And so things would come back to life. But you were never allowed to share that with your dad and you were never allowed to share that with your son. So if you knew the spells that went into the book of the dead, you couldn't read that even to your dad or to your son. Now, in a patriarchal culture, to not tell your dad something and not tell your son something, that's really special. But the general idea in the ancient world was that the common person was not, not, not only not allowed to see the sacrifices, they weren't even allowed to read the text that described them. And God gives the book of Leviticus to all of Israel. So if you've been watching The Chosen, and I highly recommend that you watch The Chosen. It's a really good show about the life of Jesus. You see Mary Magdalene trying to learn Hebrew because the first century Jews didn't allow women to read. They weren't allowed to read the text. The men had to read the text and explain it to them. So first century, you got mansplaining of the Bible to women. Right? Only that's not the way the Jews always practiced. That was first century Jews. The Jews that read, received this text, the women read. And so the men and the women were actually, the common people were reading the very text that described the way the sacrifices to go. This would have been so radical in their world. And not only that, they got to read the text about how the priests were supposed to act. And so the church ought to be reading the Bible on how the pastors ought to act, not the other way around. In other words, the word of God is given to everyone. Leviticus is saying the word of God is given to everyone to read. From the very beginning, men and women, you ought to be reading this. But why Adam? Because God is reestablishing leadership that Adam failed in the garden. So he's standing there and she's talking to the evil one. And the evil one deceives her and she reaches out and plucks the fruit and eats it and then hands it to Adam and Genesis 3 says, who was with her? He wasn't somewhere else. He was standing there watching the whole thing, failing in his leadership. God, through the sacrificial system, is saying, you guys come in here. Now, imagine this. Pastor Icky, Pastor Stan. Or just Icky and just Stan. I'm not going in there. You go in there. Did you see? That was Moses. That was Moses that was afraid to go in there. This is kind of how we should all feel as men standing outside the tent of meeting going, you sure you want to go in there? Oh, let's go get a goat. And meanwhile, Tara and Carla are behind us going, hey guys, get in there. God said, go in. Because when men fail to lead, things die. Things die in the family. Things die in the marriage. Things die in society, in your schools, in your church. Because men aren't leading. And they're just standing there waiting for women to take charge and see what happens. Sometime read the book of Luke and where it puts women in such a high, high position. And you're wondering, why aren't the guys doing that? Because they should be. It's just a story for the last couple of minutes. The hardest thing that I do, literally the hardest thing that I do as a person is lead my wife. Because I have to step in darkness and she is called to follow me. So she at least gets to see my footsteps. But I've got to walk back in there admitting my failure. And let me tell you something. When the man went in, the priest wasn't the one that killed the sacrifice. Did you catch that? So the man came in with a knife and he slit the throat of the bull or the goat or he ripped the bird in half. 
And as he did that, and the priest collected the blood and threw the blood on the sides of the altar, the man is holding the animal, feeling its life ebb right out. And he's reminded every time he goes in there, this is what happens to my life if I don't kill this. Now, this language translates really well into the New Testament, beloved. Uh, Something like, um, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And if you felt something die in your hands, you would know what it felt like to die for your family or lay down your life as a living sacrifice or take up your cross daily and follow me. All this language is built off the sacrificial system. So you would understand what it felt like to serve, right? And what God is doing is reestablishing male leadership through the sacrificial system. Now, are women included? Absolutely, yes. So if you look in chapter two, it says in verse one, when a nephish, when a nephish brings flour, Well, a nephish is a living soul, so that means anyone. When anyone comes in with a flower sacrifice. So now what we have is animals representing the blood is the life of the flesh, representing blood, and flower represents the bread of life. And so now you have women who do most of the grinding culturally. So the women are now bringing flower sacrifices. But notice they're not allowed in the tent of meeting. And if you read down in the text and text in chapter two, which we don't have time for, but if you read it, she's allowed to bake a pancake. She's allowed to bake a loaf of bread. She's allowed to make muffins. She's allowed to make wafers. What it has to have on top of it though, is a little bit of frankincense. And it also has to have a little bit of oil and then a little bit of salt, but no leaven and no honey. And often people associate leaven and honey with sin, but that's not right because you're allowed to offer leaven and honey in first fruits offering. You know why you can't put leaven or honey in the bread? Because it tastes good and God's not eating it. That's the whole point. No one wants to eat flat bread. You would think if you were serving the most high, you would give him the best bread, like a Cinnabon or something. But the Lord is saying, I'm not eating this stuff. I'm only smelling it when you burn it because what really matters, men and women, is that you come and stand in front of me. In fact, the word for, the Hebrew word for the offering is korban, which you know from the New Testament. But the word for korban is based on a Hebrew verb, which means to approach, which being translated means if you believe in an omnipresent God, it doesn't matter if you're in the tent of meeting or outside of the tent of meeting. When you offer the sacrifice, God is near you. It's called an approach offering. So when the woman adds or gives the flower, God is approaching her outside of the tent of meeting, which is the whole point. God never intended to stay inside the tent of meeting. There's not like some inner circle smoky room where guys get to meet God and women don't. It's this language here in Leviticus is saying everybody, men and women, image of God, come and stand in front of him and be accepted and have all your insecurities taken care of. And it uses the exact same language. It's an aroma pleasing to God, which being translated means you're acceptable. But you have to come through sacrifice. And let me tell you, taking care of bulls and goats and oxen is a difficult job. 
And probably what is as difficult or even more difficult is grinding grain into flour. And women did that. In fact, if you, if you look at what the archaeologists say when they pulled up the bones of, of ancient Near Eastern women, they almost always had arthritis in their wrists and their forearms and their shoulders because they were always like grinding grain with a stone. And you had to grind it before you bought it. You couldn't just burn the grain. You had to make it into flour. And what God is reminding both men and women about in this text is, let me tell you something, work is hard. And work is hard is because y'all have sinned and walked away from me. And I can redeem your work. And I can make your work new. But there's this anticipation now that's going on through this whole sacrificial system, because going in there and bringing a sacrifice before God and killing it, I don't get to stay in the tent of meeting, do I? When I offer my flower, doesn't he expect a sack of flour the next week? So the text itself leaves us hanging in the Old Testament because we are just longing for the day when that sacrifice is a final one. The whole system was set up and they knew it. It was insufficient. Uh, uh, Just imagine this. I kill your son and in repayment, I give you a sack of flour. Done. We're even. I'll take a sack of flour or I'll kill my dog or my goat or my bull. You go, whoa, 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 whoa. I know better than that. Image of God is far, far, far more valuable than anything that we're dumping in front of you, God. We need an equal substitute because we know all these bulls and goats and we know all this flour and grain is not cutting it. That's why we're doing it constantly, constantly, constantly all the time. And so this text is really getting the Jewish people to lean forward and go, when is it going to be done? Enter Jesus of Nazareth, who steps up and leads as a man and gives his life as an atoning sacrifice for everyone and dies on a cross and is torn apart for you and me, for you and me, so we could come back. But I'm with you in this, beloved. It's not done yet, is it? I mean, it's done. He said it was finished on the cross, but we still are in these bodies that are racked with sin. We still live in a world where work has a tremendous amount of drudgery. So let's not just be so kind of like bent on our theology that Christ's payment for sin, which was payment in full, and absolutely one uh, one has done everything completely, has not still left us with, we are still waiting for a return. Right? We are still waiting for him to come back and make it right. We are still struggling with the things that God, that separate us from God. I I still struggle with insecurities. I still struggle with worrying about what you're going to think when I'm on stage. I I still lie and cheat and steal and those kinds of things. And you do too. But this is what we know. We can stand before God and be accepted by the blood of Christ. 
And I don't know y'all. Been here since October. I know some of you. But if you're here today and you have never heard this message, that God is welcoming you back, come home. Today's the day. Come home. Today's the day to come stand in front of God and see that he sent his son in your place. And that death for you is sufficient. Proof, his resurrection. That God raised him from the dead and has seated him at the right hand, his right hand. And he now is there as an advocate for you saying, this one's mine. They are clean. Let's pray. Father, just to know those words that you want us to come back. But then on top of that, to know that we can stand before you accepted and not just accepted, that we are pleasing to you. Father, we struggle with that. I'm asking you this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit to give everyone, particularly those of the household of faith, this amazing sense that I'm accepted before you because of what your son Jesus Christ has done on the cross. And we pray in his name, Christ our Lord. Amen.